847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. This episode features another installment of my recurring listening to topic, and in this instance, I'm turning back the clock and traveling to the early years of film music to find my focus. Uh, to a famed composer who was one of the uh, original architects during the golden age of the art form of film and both film music, and this would be Franz Waxman. Now, before continuing, I should apologize for any noise you hear in the background. I currently have a heater running uh, because it can get a bit chilly in my studio here. And yes, I realize this is probably hilarious for anyone outside of Los Angeles uh, and hilarious for anyone inside of Los Angeles, too. Uh, But surprisingly, we can get some cooler temps here around this time in the low 30s, if you can believe it. So I apologize for any of that uh, noise you might hear in the background. So back to my opening. Uh, Franz Waxman was an immensely talented man uh, who contributed fascinating, rich, and melodic music for almost 150 movies uh, from the, ni- or the early 1930s uh, until the late 1960s. Now, of all the, go- the composers of this golden age of film music, as it has been termed before, I connect the most with Waxman's scores, um, primarily due to one particular title, uh, which was kind of my gateway um, into his work. Something which motivated me to check out more by him, Um, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, I will get to that title in just a bit. So exploring the music of Franz Waxman is also a way for me to talk a bit about that particular time in film music history. Uh, Again, from the 1930s through the 1950s, uh, putting him into some context. Um, This is what is often referred to as the golden age of Hollywood um, in all aspects of its production. Um, Art design uh, from directing and uh, the performances and also including music. Now, for some newer and younger soundtrack fans, there can be some hesitation to explore these initial decades in the 20th century uh, when the art form of movie music uh, was pretty much being invented on the fly. Uh, There's such a distance uh, from what movie music now sounds like that I can understand that it might seem quaint or stolid, you know, or naive, kind of like listening to your parents' favorite radio station instead of your own, uh, or your parents' favorite Pandora or Spotify station, (laughs) if we'll keep it current. Um, But like any art form, film music has a lineage, a history which you can study, uh, a foundation upon which the current crop, whether it's a Hans Zimmer or a Michael Giacchino or a Ludwig Göransson, still refer to or even react against. Um, And each of those films uh, from that era uh, is pretty much like a brick in that foundation uh, upon which we're still building this um, edifice of film and film music. Now, I haven't featured much music from this era on my podcast so far, um, although uh, my Bernard Herrmann episode covered some of the same time frame, um, but his sound and style is really far removed from what was the overarching sound of movies back then. He really was unique um, against all the, re- the, uh, the other uh, composers of that era. Uh, so I think that Waxman is a great place to start, especially for fans of John Williams or James Horner, 
uh, or Alan Silvestri. As Franz Waxman often drew from uh, the same rich tradition of the post-romantic era in classical music as uh, those other composers I mentioned uh, have done. Uh, For example, here is a taste of his rousing opening music to uh, the movie Prince Valiant from 1954. Franz Waxman was uh, also a composer who was always evolving, uh, not unlike how Jerry Goldsmith did throughout his career. And over the course of Waxman's 30 years in the industry, um, he wound up incorporating challenging dissonances and rhythms uh, that emerged in the concert world in the mid-20th century, um, as well as various ethnic idioms, uh, such as from the Far East, um, and certain instrumentation, like the Hammond organ, um, and even popular trends of the day, uh, such as jazz influences, uh, he incorporated into his music. For example, check out this cue from his score uh, from a, a movie called The King of the Roaring Twenties from 1961. Thank you. 
So those cues I just presented from Prince Valiant and King of the Roaring Twenties give a taste of the breadth of variety found in Franz Waxman's film music. Um, But to take a step back for a moment, I should properly introduce Franz Waxman to you. So he was born in 1906, uh, the youngest of six children, in Upper Silesia, Germany. Uh, It's an area that wound up becoming part of Poland. Now, the family name was actually Waxman, uh, W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N-N, which Franz changed to Waxman after moving to the States. Um, But he was actually the only musician that emerged from his family. Uh, And from all accounts, he was a serious musician, uh, a consummate musician, right from the start, and ended up studying music in Dresden and Berlin as soon as he was old enough. In fact, Franz Waxman's son, John Waxman, who's a film music historian, tells a story about how uh, his grandfather, uh, Franz Waxman's father, um, wouldn't allow him to go study music until he had worked at a, like a real job, quote-unquote real job, at a bank for a year. Um, once he did that, then he was able to actually move himself to Dresden to study music. Uh, but he wound up having to support himself, and he supported himself by playing piano in nightclubs um, around town. And true to the old axiom about making it in Hollywood, it's who you know. Well, it was these nightclub gigs that put him on the path. Uh, Waxman became friends with another young composer named Friedrich Hollander, uh, who wrote songs for one of the nightclubs that he performed in. And Hollander had just been hired uh, to work on the now classic Marlena Dietrich picture, The Blue Angel. And this was all about 1930, uh, all still in Germany. So Hollander asked his friend Franz to orchestrate and arrange his songs for the Blue Angel. And Waxman's work so impressed the film's producer, Eric Pomer, that uh, when Pomer was hired uh, by the Hollywood studio 20th Century Fox to produce a film version of the Jerome Kern, Oscar Hammerstein stage musical music in the air, he invited Waxman to adapt the score. This was all around 1934. Um, and when this happened with the uh, music in the air that he had to, uh, that he was hired to work on. And in Germany, if you get my drift, uh, things were not going well. Uh, so the choice to uh, leave the country was a relatively easy one for Waxman, uh, especially after he'd actually been assaulted in the streets in Berlin by Nazi youths. Um, and it's actually interesting, many of the most talented artists in Germany fled during this time to places like Paris and London and America. And we see evidence of their talents uh, sort of ending up uh, in the film industry. And they contributed so much of uh, what we remember as classic films during this golden age. So Waxman's contribution to that uh, adaption of Music in the Air uh, was highly regarded. And he wound up scoring a few smaller pictures in uh, Germany and France. And before you know it, director James Whale, who was finishing up The Bride of Frankenstein in 1935 heard Waxman's music in a German film from director Fritz Lang. This was a movie called Lilium. Uh, And James Whale was so taken with Waxman's music that he hired him to score uh, his sequel to the original horror classic Frankenstein. Now, this was music that I had featured on my Halloween episode last year, uh, but this score for Bride of Frankenstein uh, was so groundbreaking for a horror movie, um, even in these early days of film, before they were sort of cliches that we would, you know, could refer to, Uh, But due to its tone and approach and melodicism, um, this score was so groundbreaking that the studio uh, for Brightest Frankenstein, Universal, hired Franz Waxman to head up their entire music department um, after he had finished the score. Uh, 
So here's, here is a bit of his music uh, for Bride of Frankenstein. So with that score for The Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, Waxman was catapulted to the top uh, right alongside the uh, other original architects of the art form, composers Max Steiner, Alfred Newman, and Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Now, as an aside, Max Steiner had pretty much single-handedly invented the art and craft of scoring uh, pictures in 1933 with the original King Kong, um, as everything in film was being invented as they went along. Just for some context, pretty much all the composers hired for film at this point all either migrated over from the concert classical world in Europe or from Broadway. Uh, Steiner and Korngold are the former. Um, Korngold was was considered a prodigy uh, in Vienna, uh, while Alfred Newman is the latter, uh, coming from the world of Broadway. Now, they all brought that theatricality of the stage, both concert and musical, to movie music, um, in addition, uh, since the silent film era had already been pillaging its music from the classical catalog uh, to accompany its images, audiences were already accustomed to hearing this style of music behind the images, whether played on a piano, organ, or orchestra. When it became evident um, uh, once they hit the, uh, the sound era that original music really needed to be composed for movies, this sound stuck. Uh, It's one of the reasons why this era can also be classified as the quote-unquote classical era of film music, Um, especially when someone like John Williams came along in the 1970s, in the late 1970s, and pretty much resurrects it, uh, something that has been since termed neoclassical. For example, there's a book by author Emilio Odesino on John Williams where he uh, sort of uses these terms, and I thought it was a fantastic way to sort of categorize this as Williams being a neoclassical approach when he resurrects the sound and style of the Golden Age, therefore making the Golden Age the classical era of film music. 
so getting back to Waxman, uh, he's, so he's been set up as chief of the music department at Universal Studios, um, and all the studios back then had musicians and composers on staff. So for the next few years, he supervised or composed uh, for all genres, dozens of movies. Uh, some highlights, uh, such as being the 1937 seafaring epic Captain Courageous, uh, starring Spencer Tracy and Lionel Barrymore. Uh, Waxman provided a sweeping score to accompany the action. And here's the main title, uh, which incidentally opens with the MGM fanfare that Waxman also composed. So that was the main title from uh, the movie Captain's Courageous uh, from 1937. Of course, having proven himself adept at, at horror pictures, uh, Franz Waxman uh, was assigned for several more uh, at Universal, including The Devil Doll in 1936, uh, which was directed by Todd Browning, uh, who also directed the original Dracula in 31 and the very infamous Freaks. Um, and also Franz Waxman scored Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1941, of course, adapted from the famous Robert Louis Stevens book. Um, and this also starred Spencer Tracy in the title role. So we just had Spencer Tracy and Captain's Courageous. For Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Waxman primarily adapted two existing themes to duel each other in the score, one being an English dance hall tune called See Me Dance the Polka, and the other uh, from a Johann Strauss waltz, Morgenblatter. Um, here is the main title from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1941.
that was the main title from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1941. So Franz Waxman was still able to dip his composing toes back into his days performing and arranging popular tunes. Um, This was often done for romantic comedies. Um, So in 1936, Waxman was loaned out to the studio MGM to write the title song and score for a Clark Gable comedy called Love on the Run, uh, also starring Joan Crawford. Waxman's title tune, uh, called Gone, is performed on screen in the movie and then gets threaded throughout uh, the few score cues that are in it. Um, Here's the vocal version of that song, Gone. This is from Love on the Run from 1936. Presenting Virginia Sims. Now that you've heard the vocal version of that song, here is how Franz Waxman adapts that tune for the main title for the movie, um, which really has a snappy pace, uh, opening again with the MGM fanfare. Uh, This is the main title from Love on the Run. So that was the main title from Love on the Run from 1936. Two items of note that I wanted to mention at this point. A number of these cues uh, that I've played are from the original soundtracks um, and can be found on a marvelous four-CD disc set from Entrada Records, uh, which collects music from 11 Franz Waxman pictures. Now, these are archival recordings, um, not always in stereo. Uh, Sometimes it is in mono and sort of best sources available at the time. Um, but it's great to have them preserved on disc, regardless. 
secondly, the score for Love on the Run only amounts to about 15 minutes of music, um, which is shocking in this day and age of movies which usually are overscored. Um, but I wanted to mention it as an example of an approach that's not uncommon in this early era of cinema. Funny enough, uh, having such a, a small amount of music for any of these, any given movie, actually allowed the composers to write music for many more movies in a year than would be possible now. For example, Waxman is credited with scoring 13 films in 1936. Um, so you can see if he was only doing 15 minutes of music, you know, it allowed him to be able to take on more projects. Um, but back then, everyone was still trying to figure out this whole, quote, adding underscore to talking pictures thing. Um, and in the early 1930s, a movie might only have music for the main and in title sequences and nothing else. Um, I think it's like applying a live theater model to the cinema, sort of like playing music only before a play begins, and then uh, again once the curtain falls. Uh, it was a developing process for the composers back then, uh, as well as the directors and producers, to try to figure out scoring under dialogue or scoring under um, you know any sort of suspense sequences or action sequences. What do we do? Because um, some of the, the the studios were afraid that audiences would get confused about where the music was coming from. That was Franz Waxman's main title from 1940's The Philadelphia Story, uh, an urbane, Oscar-nominated comedy starring Cary Grant, uh, Catherine Hepburn, and uh, James Stewart, uh, or Jimmy Stewart, uh, which has a sonorous, Gershwin-esque main theme, uh, very rich in piano accents and some bluesy chord progressions. So by this time, uh, Waxman had actually left Universal and accepted a multi-year contract with MGM. And in that same year as The Philadelphia Story, 1940, he also scored the first of his four collaborations with famed director Alfred Hitchcock. So this was the time before Hitchcock met Bernard Herrmann, uh, his most legendary composer-collaborator. In fact, Bernard Herrmann would only just begin his own career in Hollywood the next year with Citizen Kane in 1941. So Alfred Hitchcock called upon Franz Waxman to compose music for his haunting thriller Rebecca, starring Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. Waxman was highly praised and Oscar-nominated for this evo evocative score, um, which adds the Hammond organ uh, to the orchestra to sort of represent the memory and influence of a husband's deceased first wife. For this title, I'm going to play part of the suite from the score 
uh, as performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Charles Gerhardt uh, from an album that they did in the 70s. Um, they also performed that selection that I played from the Philadelphia story. It's from the same album. It's a really great album. It's called Sunset Boulevard. It has a collection of a lot of great Waxman scores on it. Uh, the score for Rebecca, uh, though, has a real rapturous, uh, rapturous quality to it. Um, following this opening, uh, which has these tolling bells sort of sounding like uh, this clock of doom in a way. But uh, here's a part of the uh, score for Rebecca from the suite performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Charles Gerhardt. I think that that is a great example of one of the many new recordings or, you know, relatively new recordings made in recent years of Waxman's music uh, by top-notch orchestras and conductors such as Gerhardt, um, really bringing to life this music that could have uh, been lost or forgotten, uh, never heard outside of the films that they accompany, and uh, assuming that the films themselves uh, survive, survive the ravages of, of time. Uh, I'll try to note which tracks I play are re-recordings and new recordings. Um, there are a few more coming up. So I mentioned that uh, Franz Waxman and Alfred Hitchcock collaborated several times in their respective careers. And in the, the second instance was actually right after Rebecca um, in 1941. And this would be a movie called Suspicion, starring Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine. Uh, Fontaine plays a woman who starts to suspect that the charming rogue that she just married, Cary Grant might be trying to murder her. Uh, it's a plot that sort of seems right out of an episode of uh, NBC's Dateline. Uh, and yet, this main title theme from Waxman exhibits none of this threat. <laughs> Instead, it's this passionate, melodic love theme. Um, I think it speaks more to the early idealized illusion of love uh, rather than its reality. Uh, and it's a theme that's heard mainly in distorted permutations after this title cue. Um, but the trilling woodwinds and these the long line strings really set a romantic mood. So this is the main title from Suspicion from 1941. 
That was the main title from Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion from 1941. So speaking of this highly melodic approach to opening a thriller, it's an approach that Waxman took very seriously and actually thought it integral to all of his film music. Of course, he wasn't alone in this, um, as pretty much all those godfathers of movie music that I mentioned, Max Steiner, Alfred Newman, Korngold, uh, even Dmitry Tiomkin, uh, all held the same belief, um, really importing it in from the concert halls and the live theater. This was the era when music for movies could actually sound like a developed piece of music. It wasn't buried by sound effects or required to just sort of drone. Uh, I'd like to read a quote from Waxman about this approach. It's from a book called Music from the Movies by Tony Thomas, a second edition. Um, So the quote is, Concert music is full of secrets. Brahms, for example reveals himself slowly, and the meaning of his music comes only with study. Film music must make its point immediately, because it is heard only once by an audience that is unprepared and didn't come to the theater to hear music anyway. I believe in strong themes that are easily recognizable and which can be repeated and varied according to the film's needs, but the variations must be expressive and not complicated."
This is the Elegy for Strings from 1943's Old Acquaintance uh, by Franz Waxman. Now, around 1943, Waxman switched studios once more, moving from MGM over to Warner Brothers, uh, remaining there for many years. This was during the heyday, as I had mentioned, of the era of the studio system, uh, when artists and craftsmen weren't really freelance and instead were under contract at one studio or another, including the composers. Just for some context, the situation was that at each studio there was a music director, such as when Waxman headed up Universal's music department, and that music director would assign films to composers and then work with them on spotting the film, the tone, which characters get themes. Uh, this wasn't really the choice of the director, the film director, back then, as it would evolve into afterwards when the studio system dissolved in the 1950s and uh, continues to today. While it might seem restrictive now, um, it did at least provide consistent, reliable employment uh, for the composers and a variety of projects uh, for them while under contract. And I think it also provided a safe space which, uh, within which to create. Um, I mean, if you're a composer who's being managed by a fellow composer, uh, there winds up being the, a common language and understanding between the two of you. Um, so there is more of a freedom to it. Um, and uh, for Franz Waxman specifically, this move to Warner Brothers included getting projects outside of dramas and some of the romantic comedies uh, that he had been known for previously, um, and moving into subjects about war, urban crime and noir thrillers, um, and even several Humphrey Bogart movies, uh, such as Dark Passage and The Two Mrs. Carrolls. For examples from some of these genres I mentioned, one of my favorites as far as the war movie genre is from Objective Burma. Uh, it's a World War II era picture from 1945 starring Errol Flynn. Uh, this is a cue called Parachute Drop, uh, which first accentuates the rapid, frightening descent uh, before uh, Waxman's heroic main theme joins the fray. Um, and this is uh, performed again by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Charles Gerhardt. So this is Parachute Drop from Objective Burma.
So again, that was Parachute Drop from the 1945 movie Objective Burma, starring Errol Flynn. Um, I also noted several Humphrey Bogart movies that Waxman tackled uh, during his time and their contract at Warner Brothers. Uh, One of these movies being To Have and Have Not from 1944. Um, This is a movie in which Humphrey Bogart uh, co-stars with Lauren Bacall, and he plays a mercenary boat captain named Harry Morgan, who uh, winds up helping out the uh, the French Resistance? Uh, a member of the French Resistance sort of escaped the Nazis, and uh, he helps out against his better judgment. So it's a little bit of a play on uh, his role in the movie Casablanca as well. Uh, but the main title uh, by Waxman is uh, very portentous and turbulent. Uh, it kind of echoes the chaos that his character Harry Morgan gets pulled into. Uh, So again, this is um, from To Have and Have Not. This is the main title and Martinique. As the 1940s continued, there were many more highlights, uh, such as the Betty Davis drama Mr. Skeffington from 1944, another Alfred Hitchcock collaboration with 1947's The Paradigm Case, and the Barbara Stanwyck thriller Sorry, Wrong Number from 1948, which I think if they remade this last movie today, uh, Sorry, Wrong Number, it might be called New Phone Who Dis? I'm kidding. It's a terrible joke. Uh, However, leading into a time uh, in Waxman's career that uh, that most consider his peak, uh, at least in terms of quality, the quality of the films, uh, the quality of his music, and the recognition, um, he really kicked off the 1950s with a one-two punch uh, by winning back-to-back Oscars, uh, one for 1950's Sunset Boulevard and the second for 1951's A Place in the Sun. So I want to start with Sunset Boulevard. So again, this is from 1950. Um, it's a very famous movie, uh, starring William Holden and Gloria Swanson, um, and tells the dramatic story of the, uh, decline of a once famous actress, uh, named Norma Desmond from the silent era. 
uh, sort of a fictionalized accounts. People had apparently assumed it was about Gloria Swanson herself, but uh, what I read, she was a lot more pragmatic uh, than uh, the Norma Desmond character. Sunset Boulevard was directed by Billy Wilder, uh, who had actually been close friends with Waxman since they both escaped Nazi Germany in the early 1930s. Um, Waxman provided a score that uh, really uh, plums the psychological depths of its characters. Um, there is the uh, theme for Gloria Swanson's character, for Norma Desmond, which is sort of a tango. Um, and then for William Holden's character, who's sort of a down-on-his-luck guy named Joe Gillis, um, Waxman provides him sort of a bebop-type theme. Now, the tango theme for Norma Desmond really reaches its crescendo in the final scene, very appropriately, uh, in a cue called the comeback. Uh, now, it's performed in a very broad style, uh, which is intended to evoke the opera Salome, uh, as composed by Richard Strauss which is appropriate since all during the movie, Norma Desmond keeps trying to get her screenplay produced, uh, which is about this character, about this biblical character, Salome. So here is music from that final sequence in Sunset Boulevard as performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Charles Gerhardt. So again, that was music from uh, Franz Waxman's score for Sunset Boulevard from 1950. Uh, I find that that grand performance of Norma Desmond's uh, theme really speaks to her fantasy in the moment um, and not the grim reality of what she's facing as she's coming down those uh, that grand staircase of her house. Uh, now, another highlight from that same year, 1950, or at least it's one of my favorites uh, from Waxman's work, uh, is his music for uh, an urban uh, crime drama called Night and the City. 
Uh, it's actually a British production about a London grifter who can't really seem to catch a break. Uh, the UK version features a score by Benjamin Frankel, while Waxman scored the American version. Um, he arranged his work into a, an orchestral suite that he subtitled Night Ride for Orchestra. And in this example, it's performed by the Queensland Symphony Orchestra and conducted by Richard Mills. The opening of this suite I love, um, as it has this really confident stride under these high glistening textures on strings and bells. Uh, so again, this is music from the 1950 uh, film Night and the City. So again, that was music from 1950's Night and the City, the American version uh, with music by Franz Waxman. So as I noted earlier, um, Sunset Boulevard was his first Oscar win. Um, and right on the heels of this, he won again the very next year for the uh, very tragic love story called A Place in the Sun, starring Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift. Um, in this score, Waxman spotlights solo saxophone uh, for Elizabeth Taylor's character um, in this gorgeous, silky, jazz-tinged setting uh, for his music. Um, now, Waxman wasn't really known for, you know, crafting, you know, pop hits, but this, along with uh, his theme for Peyton Plays, uh, would all wind up being well-remembered by audiences and fans. Uh, so this is part of a suite, uh, an orchestral suite from the film. Uh, this, so this is from A Place in the Sun from 1951 uh, by Franz Waxman.
interestingly enough, this was a project which wasn't entirely pleasant uh, for for Waxman. Um, as the film's producer, uh, George Stevens, wasn't quite fond of what he heard as a cynical edge to Waxman's score. Um, and in response, uh, Stevens hired two additional composers to re-score certain sequences of the film, A Place in the Sun. Uh, certainly not the first time it's happened uh, in Hollywood, of course, and even not the first time for Franz Waxman. Uh, but it still stings nonetheless, as I think it undercuts the totality of the work uh, that you're hearing as the film uh, as the film moves forward, as the film progresses, um, and it sort of undercuts what the music is trying to illuminate in the film's story. And if you've seen A Place in the Sun, then you know that it's a pretty downbeat story anyway. <laughs> Uh, so Waxman's music for A Place in the Sun is really its early evidence of his evolving compositional style during the decade of the 1950s, and specifically in this instance, into the growing influence of jazz, along with some other, uh, some newer composers actually on the scene, such as Alex North, Leonard Rosenman, and Elmer Bernstein. Uh, Waxman was perfectly capable of writing in this idiom um, and promoting it in his scores, uh, and in fact, he compared composing jazz akin to writing chamber music. Um, and this, of course, harkens back to his days in Germany, playing in those nightclubs. And he had developed a real affinity for the genre of jazz, um, extending even to concert works in this style. Now, we heard an example at the top of the show from his score for The King of the Roaring Twenties. Um, another example would be his music for his last collaboration with director Alfred Hitchcock, that being Rear Window from 1954. But what I'd like to do now is play music from a less well-known picture, um, this being 1956's Crime in the Streets. Uh, the movie stars John Cassavetes and Sal Mineo, and it's kind of a proto-West Side story in that it concerns um, kids and teens and uh, street gangs. Um, from that soundtrack album, though, here is a track called The Plot. So again, this is from Crime in the Streets from 1956.
So this original album uh, was recently reissued on CD by Verez Saraband with liner notes by Waxman's own son, John. And in the liner notes, John Waxman uh, talks about how this soundtrack apparently developed kind of a cult following uh, during its years on just LP and was even used in the background in some uh, Saturday Night Live sketches in the 1980s. Uh, Specifically, this track uh, was used called The Celebration. Uh, This track winds up showing a bit more influence from early rock and roll than uh, traditional jazz, but it's a pretty fun track um, in its own right. So again, this is The Celebration from Crime in the Streets. Discussing Franz Waxman's evolution as a composer, it's important to note the evolution of the projects for which he was composing. Uh, For instance, he actually became heavily involved in the concert world, um, introducing his own unique works, conducting the works of others worldwide. Uh, Plus, he started the Los Angeles Music Festival in 1947. Uh, So he became, you know, a real big uh, proponent and uh, promoter of the concert world. And in film... He was also able to contribute music uh, for pictures in one of the more popular genres of the 50s, that being the religious or the historical epic. Think of King of Kings uh, and Ben-Hur with music by Miklos Rocha and The Robe uh, with music by Alfred Newman. Now, in Waxman's case, he provided glorious and gorgeous music uh, for religious-themed movies uh, such as The Silver Chalice, The Story of Ruth, and The Nun Story. Um, in addition to historical epics like Demetrius and the Gladiators and Prince Valiant. Uh, These were movies that offered an expansive visual canvas on which to score. Lots of characters, um, big vistas, and the music was often as big as the subject matter, um, usually with large orchestra and choirs. For example, um, here is Waxman's prelude to Demetrius and the Gladiators from 1954.
So, Demetrius and the Gladiators was a follow-up to The Robe uh, from the previous year, and The Robe was one of those uh, big-budget cinemascope spectaculars from the decade, uh, kind of in that uh, vein of how the West was won. Uh, and this was meant to compete with the threat from television uh, for audiences' attention. So it was meant to sort of get audiences back into the uh, movie theaters. But uh, I had noted that The Robe uh, featured music composed by Alfred Newman, one of the godfathers of movie music. Now, Waxman considered The Robe to be one of Newman's masterworks. Uh, In fact, he was so enamored of the score for The Robe that when he found out it wasn't nominated for Best Original Score at that year's Academy Awards, Waxman resigned from the Academy in protest. Uh, Now, Newman uh, proved unavailable for the sequel for Demetrius and the Gladiator, so Waxman was offered it by Fox and ran with the opportunity, uh, crafting a very lush and thematically varied score. Heading into the late 50s and Waxman's final decade of work, I wanted to spotlight another one of his large-scale scores, uh, this one from 1957. This is the score that I mentioned at the top of the episode as being my gateway into uh, Waxman's music. This would be The Spirit of St. Louis, starring Jimmy Stewart as Charles Lindbergh uh, in a movie charting Lindbergh's uh, solo flight in a single-engine plane across the Atlantic Ocean uh, from New York to Paris. So a few years ago, I wrote a piece about this movie on my blog as it was introduced to me by my late father. Um, He had been a pilot in the Navy and always loved movies about flying and pilots and uh, often uh, war pictures as well. Um, So it was The Spirit of St. Louis and The Blue Max that uh, he owned on VHS and sat me down to watch when I was in my uh, teenage years. I uh, immediately found Waxman's score fantastic. Uh, His music is soaring uh, sonorous, and it's the real soul of the movie. Um, it, it sort of emotes all that Lindbergh might have felt, um, and all that Jimmy Stewart expresses um, during the uh, the course of the journey, uh, such as the enthusiasm in building the plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, um, and the lonely and treacherous flight, uh, the, the lonely and treacherous transatlantic flight, I should say, and the uh, exultation of finally arriving in Paris successfully. So here is both the prelude cue plus the opening of a cue called New York to Cape Cod, uh, as I wanted to spotlight the declamatory horns that sort of announce the main theme right in the prelude, um, and then followed by the, a more soaring version um, in the cue New York to Cape Cod, um, which that part opens with this rising, trilling strings um, into the main melody, Um, And this main melody sort of continues to rise in these great big melodic leaps. Um, So you can just sort of picture it sort of, you know, launching itself into the clouds. Um, So this is the prelude from the Spirit of St. Louis and uh, part of a cue called New York to Cape Cod.
That was music from The Spirit of St. Louis. Uh, it's a really gorgeous theme, and in some ways, I find that it sort of sets a precedent uh, for many of the soaring, um, flight-oriented cues that John Williams would compose um, in his own career um, in later years, such as for E.T. and Hook. Uh, at least to my ears, there's this similar uh, feeling to, to the music. Um, it, it really does, you know, s- sort of uh, lift you up into the clouds um, uh, just through those notes. And if you'll indulge me one more example from the score, um, I'd like to play part of a cue called Ireland. Uh, in this cue, uh, Waxman tentatively introduces this jaunty Irish jig, um, first in the strings, flutes, and piccolos, um, as Lindbergh uh, starts to notice evidence that he's approaching land. Uh, then there's a portion of the cue uh, that's absolutely joyful as Waxman threads his... Uh, his main spirit of St. Louis melody into the Irish jig. And I find it just beautiful. Uh, So this is part of a cue called Ireland from the spirit of St. Louis. So again, that was music from 1957's The Spirit of St. Louis, the score that got me interested in Franz Waxman's music. Uh, And it's also now um, a really lovely reminder of my father and memories of him sharing this movie with me so many years ago. Sadly, it was only 10 years later, um, in February 1967, that Waxman passed away from cancer uh, at the age of 60, uh, if you can believe it. His last few years were spent composing music for TV series, uh, such as Gunsmoke and Craft Suspense Theater. However, he did wrap up his cinematic efforts in a grand fashion, uh, with three spectacular scores in 1962. My Geisha, Hemingway's Adventures of a Young Man, 
and Terrace Bulba, the latter for which he was Oscar-nominated. Terrace Bulba was an exciting historical epic uh, starring Yul Brynner and Tony Curtis in a story set in the 16th century as Ukrainian citizens rise up to free themselves from domination by Poland. Franz Waxman composed a rousing score, uh, including uh, this uh, symphonically furious standout cue called The Ride to Dubno. This is a cue that gradually gains muscle and volume as uh, on screen there is an army of Cossacks that's being gathered um, before the cue sort of reaches this fortissimo crescendo. Um, now, in 1963, Waxman talked about this score and how his time conducting concerts of Russian composers in Kiev allowed him the opportunity to study Ukrainian folk songs, and that sort of inspires his melodies here. So this is the cue, The Ride to Dubno, from Terrace Bulba from 1962. In wrapping up this overview of the film music of Franz Waxman, one of the original pioneers of the art form, a brilliant, versatile composer, I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me to take this deep dive into his music, listening for what makes it unique and memorable, and also to share some context of early mo- the early movie music scene. Uh, when musical geniuses from the concert world, Broadway, and even German nightclubs immigrated to Hollywood, to enrich the movies. Music in this episode was composed by Franz Waxman and from the following films, Prince Valiant, King of the Roaring Twenties, The Bride of Frankenstein, Captain's Courageous, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Love on the Run, The Philadelphia Story, Rebecca, Suspicion, Old Acquaintance, Objective Burma, To Have and Have Not, Sunset Boulevard, Night and the City, A Place in the Sun, Demetrius and the Gladiators, Crime in the Streets, The Spirit of St. Louis, and Terrace Bulba. 
If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at ascortosettle.blogspot.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash ascortosettle. And on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's score the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. And of course, we are available on Spotify now. Thanks again for listening.